Hello, 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 and welcome to the 24th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Yanni, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, it was announced about a month ago that Lee Ka-shing, billionaire tycoon from Hong Kong and widely known as the Superman, would officially retire at the ripe old age of 89. In doing so, he bequeaths his life's work, a gargantuan conglomerate in the name of C.K. Hutchison and C.K. Asset Holdings, which employs over 320,000 employees in over 50 countries, to his eldest son, Victor, whilst walking away with a cool net worth of 34.2 billion USD, according to the business magazine Forbes. To put those staggering figures into context, Lee's net worth would be roughly 10% of Hong Kong's 342 billion USD of GDP in 2017, whilst the number of employees under Lee's conglomerates would amount to about 4.3% of Hong Kong's 7.4 million 2017 population. However, instead of fawning over massive sums that would likely be out of reach for the most of us, today we're going to be exploring something that is more applicable. And just like how any story is really about the journey and not the destination, it is the journey of Lee Ka-shing and how he got to where he is today that is worth noting. Along the way, we'll be discussing stories and incidents from his background and career, along with all the failures and successes that he went through. It is through his storied history then, that I hope to pluck out some key learning points about business, strategy, hard work, and of course, some very, very delicious grains of capitalism so that you too may follow in the footsteps of the capitalist Superman. Without further ado, let's begin. Our story begins in the city of Taozhou in the Guangdong province of China, where Li Kaixing was born on June 13, 1928. Unlike the middle-class comforts that we grow accustomed to in today's society, Lee was born into poverty and endured tremendous hardship throughout his childhood. For instance, he had the great misfortune of being born during a time when Japan was to soon invade China, and he recalls that he, while he was schooling in 1938, Japanese planes began bombing his city of Taozhou. This led his father, who was then a school principal, to take Lee to flee to nearby Hong Kong for safety a year later. Yet, more hardship was to come, as Lee's father developed tuberculosis shortly after moving to Hong Kong and had to be bedridden in a public hospital. In a twisted turn of events, Lee would desperately try to scrimp and save in order to purchase several medical books regarding tuberculosis and its treatment, only to find that, quote, I was only 13 then and scared to death after reading those books. I had all the symptoms. According to Lee, this was one of the toughest moments of his childhood and it is not hard to imagine why. During this period, Lee only had his father in Hong Kong, with little means to contact any other family. As he recalls, My childhood days were very tough, tough that I had no one to talk to. I couldn't have written and told mother, could I? I absolutely not. Whatever went wrong with my life, I couldn't tell mother. The moment that resonated most with Lee would come a day before his father's death, when in a rare moment of health, he asked Lee if he had anything to say, rather than saying his own parting words. Imagine the state of Lee then, alone in a new city with his only guardian dying and still trying to offer support, the tragedy of which is captured in his own words when he notes, quote, Think about it and you'll find it very sad. With the weight of the world seemingly against Lee, he still managed to confidently speak up and comfort his dying father, saying that the whole of our family will have a very good life. 
From these parting words to his father, we can easily tell how such a moment would impact his future, and it is from here that we can get our first lesson. For people tend to be creatures of circumstance, and while hardship and misfortune can break a lot of us, it can also drive and motivate us, such as it has done for Lee. The key lesson to note here, and which will be elaborated further throughout Lee's story, is that bad things can happen to almost anyone at any time at no fault of their own. But it takes the individual to determine how they let the misfortune affect their lives. Just like how Lee managed to will through the toughest period of his childhood to become successful, so have many others from even worse childhoods and misfortunes. To this end, you can even consider the Paralympians who choose to continue striving for success rather than letting their handicap define their lives. In other words, regardless of any outside factors or circumstances, you still play a key role in shaping your own future through your actions, your attitudes, and your decisions. As Lee himself aptly puts it, quote, when times are tough, you need to ask yourself if you're up to it. Now that we talked about the tragedy, we can begin discussing the long and arduous road to recovery. And oh my oh my was it a difficult one for Lee. As I've mentioned earlier, Lee was not born into a life of luxury, and given his father's death, he was now saddled with the extra burden of financial responsibility for his family. So heavy was the task that Lee actually opted to drop out of school around the age of 15 so that he could work for a plastics factory full-time during sales. But... Determined as he was after his father's passing, Lee was more than up for it, stating how, quote, I promised myself that after saying those confident words to father, I must work doubly hard for a future. And work hard, he did. During this period, he often worked up to 16 hours a day for 7 days a week, and it was arguably during these years that he cultivated the famous work ethic that still holds through to his old age. Eventually, he worked his way up to become top salesman in his company and got a promotion to be a factory manager when he was 18, before deciding to open his own plastics manufacturing company in 1950 at the tender age of 22. Yet, throughout these long and tiring years, perhaps the biggest takeaway is Lee's continued efforts towards self-improvement, which reinforces the earlier point I made about how the individual plays a big role in shaping their own lives. For instance, this can be seen in his voracious appetite for gaining knowledge, as he points out, quote, While other people learned, I grabbed, grabbed knowledge. Without the money to buy new books, I bought old ones, textbooks used by teachers for high school. I only had a dictionary and the books, and I studied on my own. When I was done with my books, I exchanged them for more old books. In the circumstances then, I was working for a future. If this is not a clear example of his attitude and drive towards self-determination, then I really don't know what is. And to this point, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but you have to take into account the conditions that Lee was in. I mean, the man was already working 16 hours a day and he still found the time to study and find books and learn new things. This was a driven man with a clear goal of what he wanted to achieve and he was not going to let any extraneous factors get in the way. 
And if you put his work ethic and drive for self-improvement against the modern-day working population, I don't think there's really much of a comparison. Like how many of us just switch off at the end of the workday to relax or play video games or watch TV? Or how many of us complain when we have to stay back to do extra work or don't get the working conditions or assignments or projects that we prefer? I know I'm definitely guilty of this, more often than I probably should be, but the point here is not to castigate or point fingers at you just because you decide to slack off and watch television after work. I mean, everyone's got to take a break sometimes, right? Rather, this is more to highlight the powerful notion of trade-offs when it comes to individual decisions, which Lee brought up in an earlier quote about how he was working for a future. This is as each minute you spend doing something is a minute you could have done something else. And the choice you make between short-term and long-term benefits matters greatly over a lengthy period of time. School here is a perfect example. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm in a majority here, right, when I say that spending a good chunk of your time confined in school, trudging through lectures and tedious problems is not exactly the definition of, you know, short-term gratification, right? And yet, students still go because they believe that the effort and hard work put in studying will pay off in the future when they are gainfully employed. Perhaps they could have spent their day hanging out at McDonald's or going to the movies, but they know that in doing so, they risk missing out on the valuable knowledge and skills that will help them in the long term. What's so special about Li Ka-shing then, is that he took this idea of short and long-term trade-offs to the extreme and basically carved out a life ethos out of it. As he recalls in an interview, quote, When my colleagues went to play, I went to study. We'd all had very little education, but they remained the same while I was becoming increasingly knowledgeable. We were doing similar work, but I was striving for improvement all the time. Therefore, if you have big dreams or ambitions in life, take the initiative and the action to work towards it. You know, pick up a book, take an online course, go to school, work an internship, practice your craft, whatever. These days, thanks to modern technology and the internet, there's so many things that you can do to improve yourself and your future outcome that it is not enough to be a mere receiver of knowledge. One has to actively go out of their way to procure it. And yes, I admit that not everyone wants to be a billionaire, and not everyone wants to be the best in the world at what they do. I mean, some are comfortable with their current lives, and some just don't think it's worth the time or effort to study or read books. And you know what? That's perfectly fine. The key here is that you are conscious of the choices that you make and the trade-offs that you are making. If you're spending your free time lounging around, don't expect promotions or big-paying jobs to, you know, just come your way. On the other hand, if you want that promotion or that big-paying job or a successful business, be prepared to put in the hours and the effort towards getting it. Moreover, I'm sure that there'll be many of you that say that there are kids out there who can barely get by trying to find food, let alone find the time for self-improvement. Or that even if it is possible to work your way up from poverty, that the rich and the well-off will always have a smoother road to success. Now, I'm not going to point to Lee's rag-to-riches story here and say that all these concerns don't matter. They definitely do. Many people out there are suffering daily, while others live without a worry in the world. However, what do you think is a more constructive thing to say to these people? That if you work hard and continually strive for self-improvement, you can one day be like Li Ka-shing? Or that you can never have it as good as Li Ka-shing because you were born into poverty? The former pushes and motivates you to be the best version of yourself, you know, to overcome your limitations, your circumstances, and all your obstacles, while the latter sounds defeatist, like you're trying to justify your meager, difficult life. 
And personally speaking, I've seen friends who grew up poor that worked hard and are now killing it on their jobs, and proudly display their achievements or the sacrifices that they've made to get there, and it just warms my heart seeing them so happy of their richly deserved rewards. But what really gets the tears going for me is when I hear of individuals who undergo extreme hardships to make it to where they are. Parents working themselves to the bone for their children is one classic example, but another outstanding example of this is the North Korean defector Ji Seung-ho, who literally begged and stole his way to freedom, lost his legs in the process, and yet somehow managed to find his way to China and South Korea away from the North Korean tyranny. Here is an excerpt from the recent State of the Union address in the United States, where President Trump personally lauded him. We are joined by one more witness to the ominous nature of this regime. His name is Mr. Ji Sung Ho. In 1996, Sung Ho was a starving boy in North Korea. One day he tried to steal coal from a railroad car to barter for a few scraps of food, which were very hard to get. In the process, he passed out on the train tracks, exhausted from hunger. He woke up as a train ran over his limbs. He then endured multiple amputations without anything to dull the pain or the hurt. His brother and sister gave what little food they had to help him recover and ate dirt themselves permanently stunting their own growth. Later, he was tortured by North Korean authorities after returning from a brief visit to China. His tormentors wanted to know if he'd met any Christians. He had, and he resolved after that to be free. Sung Ho traveled thousands of miles on crutches all across China and Southeast Asia to freedom. Most of his family followed. His father was caught trying to escape and was tortured to death. Today, he lives in Seoul, where he rescues other defectors and broadcasts into North Korea what the regime fears most, the truth. Today, he has a new leg, but Sung Ho, I understand you still keep those old crutches as a reminder of how far you've come. Your great sacrifice is an inspiration to us all. Please, thank you. Now that we've gone through Lee's childhood and early working years, let's now dive into how he built his wealth. So, 
As I've mentioned earlier, Lee started his own plastics manufacturing company in 1950 with the skills he picked up from his employment, as well as with personal savings and borrowed funds from relatives. He would name this company Cheng Kong, after the Yangtze River, which is the longest river in China, and started out by supplying high-quality plastic flowers at low prices around all around the world. To this end, you can say that Li had some help given Hong Kong's favorable position as a world-renowned trading hub, as well as with the massive influx of cheap foreign labor coming in from China. However, this is not to discount Li's own input and efforts into the matter. After all, before deciding to sell plastic flowers, he avidly read trade publications and business news to pick up on current trends, as well as going so far as to learn accounting by himself so that he can manage the finances of his company. And yet, as with any growing business, not everything was smooth sailing for Li and Cheng Kong, and he suffered a substantial setback early on in his career. Li's reaction to this incident and the consequent events that followed will be a watershed moment for the company's business, which will serve as a case example for our next lesson. You see, about five years into the business, he was getting ready to ship out an order of plastic toys when the buyer suddenly called to cancel. Now, you can imagine how this could be awful for Lee, right? The business had already committed all these resources towards creating the toys, including labor, raw materials, energy, and whatever, and now the buyer suddenly cancels out of the blue. And yet, Instead of seeking compensation like any distraught seller would do in this situation, Lee simply brushed it off. As he recalls, quote, I said there are plenty of buyers for the goods and I didn't need him to compensate me for my losses. I also said that if another business opportunity rose, we could build an even better relationship. In a strange turn of events, he would shortly receive an unexpected call from a foreigner who was introduced to Chung Kong by another company. The foreigner mentioned that his associate had praised Lee's companies to the heavens, even saying how it was the biggest plastics manufacturer in Hong Kong with an enormous factory. Lee was taken aback by this, saying that, quote, I was dumbfounded because my factory was not huge. It was in fact small. In spite of this, the foreigner trusted his associate's words so much that he placed a huge order for Chong Kong to supply goods for six months at a go. The kicker here was that the foreigner was in fact introduced to Chong Kong by the very man who had cancelled his order earlier and even said that Lee was completely trustworthy to deal with. That deal would be the big break that propelled Chong Kong to the next level and within a few years, Lee was able to expand his operation by purchasing a site and developing his very own factory building, thereby foreshadowing decades more of expansion to come. So, what's the lesson here? The obvious one is an observation on how trust is essential to any business. Had the foreigner not trusted the words of his associate, Lee might not have obtained a huge order, and his career might have panned out differently. Of course, trust works both ways. If someone recommends your business, their credibility is dependent on your ability to execute. If Lee had failed to adequately supply for the foreigner, the associate's credibility would be torn to bits, as would Lee's own reputation if word got out that Chung Kong was not the amazing plastics manufacturer that everyone had expected. In this way, Lee's story exemplifies a key tenet in how trade works. Success and long-lasting profit is built off of trust and mutually beneficial relationships with your client. You can see this with any business, right? In Singapore, if a chicken rice seller serves you amazing food and the hawker is friendly and efficient to boot, you are likely to visit again, or even better, bring your friends along. On the other hand, if the chicken rice seller is mean to you, his food is overpriced, and he serves burnt chicken and dry rice, 
then I doubt you'll be going back anytime soon. In fact, you might even complain about it to your friends, which will hurt the lousy chicken rice sellers' prospects even further. This is how trade aligns the incentives of buyers and sellers. Although the business might want to get rich quick by some fancy scheme that rips off buyers, it is unlikely that they are able to sustain this or even get away with it in the long term, especially given how quickly word of mouth can spread in the internet age. Moreover, Lee's reaction in the face of failure is also worth pointing out. As I've mentioned earlier, it is rare that you see a business not seek compensation the way Lee did. In modern days, this is even more unlikely given the investment in business contracts, arbitration methods, and financial instruments such as letters of credit. Therefore, to be able to take a big loss in your stride, and even to try and find opportunity in it, is admirable on Lee's part. As he sums up nicely, quote, The moral is this, something that seems to be a loss can often turn out to be a gain. While many can get caught up in the little obstacles and losses in our daily lives, Lee's story does well to remind that there can always be a silver lining no matter how grey the clouds, which is to say that your attitude matters a great deal in recovering from failure. Aptly enough, this attitude is embodied within the company's name Cheng Kong and the metaphor of the Yangtze River. As Lee points out, quote, The Yangtze River doesn't pick and choose its tributaries. Waters from small streams and springs are just pulled over. In the same way, Lee doesn't get to choose what happens to him in his life, and yet, like the river, he has to take the circumstances in his stride and keep moving forward. And it is precisely this mentality that enabled him to pull through the difficult period of the 1960s. As cultural revolutionists under the influence of Mao Zedong began to infiltrate and riot in the streets of Hong Kong demanding the country back from the British, Lee was strategic, using this opportunity to purchase a substantial amount of property as prices plunged. While you may look back on the matter and label him as cunning for making such a move, in reality it was probably more of a huge gamble. You see, property prices were plunging because buyers were scared off by the political instability within Hong Kong. If you were looking to invest your capital in some property, your first option should definitely not be a country where a revolution was trying to take place. For one, there is a great chance that these rioters would damage the property you just purchased. For another, there is a great deal of uncertainty surrounding the status of your ownership should Mao actually secure Hong Kong back from the British. Perhaps if things had played out differently back then, Lee's gamble might have backfired, leading him to lose a significant amount of capital that he had worked so hard to build. And yet, despite all the risks involved, Lee and Cheng Kong took it in their stride, once again finding the silver lining in seemingly the most grim situations. Such experiences would be a hallmark of the strategic news that Lee displayed as he went on to develop his property empire. After getting a taste of playing the property game, Lee saw an opportunity to expand even further. Seeing as how land was becoming scarce in Hong Kong through the 1970s, property was starting to become a very lucrative business. It was during this period then that Lee switched gears, turning from the industrialist plastics manufacturer into a full-fledged property developer. 
And just like the many obstacles that Lee has faced in his past, the property market was full of them. Particularly, British-owned companies dominated the region, owning large swaths of land and property throughout Hong Kong during the period. In spite of this, Lee had massive ambition, as exemplified through the words of Catherine Hung, then executive director of Chung Kong Holdings, who said, quote, I think Mr. Lee is a man of vision who sets himself targets. I remember once after a business meeting, casually saying that our company would be the best among Chinese-owned property companies, would be better than Hong Kong land. To call his ambition daring would be putting it lightly, for Hong Kong land at the time was the largest property developer in the whole country, owned by the British conglomerate Jardines, a company which incidentally is listed on the Singapore exchange, and which has ownership stake in a vast array of industries from automobiles to hotel to retail and even supermarkets. Some of the well-known brands under this huge holding company include giant supermarkets, Mandarin Oriental Hotels, and cycle and carriage automobiles. In order to arm his company with the necessary resources to take on these British giants, Chung Kong Holdings would go public for the first time in 1972, officially listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The first major victory took place when Chung Kong successfully beat Hong Kong land for development site above the Central and Admiralty MTR stations in 1977. This would be a momentous occasion for the company and very much emboldened Lee's bold ambitions. As Miss Catherine Hung again recalls, quote, At that time, British-owned companies were far and away stronger than all property companies, and it was basically impossible for us to be better than Hong Kong land. But in 1977, we beat Hong Kong land for the right to develop the site above the MTR station in Central. I thought Lee had turned impossibility into reality. Amazingly, Lee's ambition would not die there, and as he sought to establish an international company, he set his sights on not only beating the British, but winning over control as well. The reasoning was not so much patriotic as it was practical. As Lee himself stated, quote, if I could take over these companies, I'd be able to get their assets, and their people would also be useful. In 1979, Chung Kong would secure another major victory when Lee announced that his company had won over a controlling stake in the second largest British company in Hong Kong, Hutchison Wampoa Company Limited. The move, which is aided by HSBC, was portrayed by the media as a pivotal chapter in Hong Kong's economic history, one that signaled a massive turn of the tides from foreign to local control. Yet, it is what the media left out that is most telling. As stated by Lee, quote, the media neglected one thing. Why did Hong Kong banks sell their shares to me? Their biggest consideration was whoever bought the shares should be able to manage and lead the company towards better development. And it is Lee's management ability and style that will provide this final lesson in today's episode. For every great company has great leaders, and great leaders are those who excel in managing their key assets well, their technology, their capital, and most importantly, their people. And this becomes increasingly challenging the larger the scale of the business, where the leader has to preside over thousands upon thousands of decisions and strategic moves. To pull up a quick example, where a small family business such as a chicken rice stall can make do with the boss doing everything from cooking, menu design, pricing, budgeting, marketing, hiring, and so on, this is impossible to do for a large corporation, let alone a gigantic one as big as a conglomerate. For one thing, there's just too many things to do when you scale up. For another, it's just more efficient to have staff that specialize in certain areas rather than trying to do everything yourself. 
Certainly, you can imagine that Facebook wouldn't be the juggernaut it is today if Mark Zuckerberg had to tend to every single complaint whilst trying to create new products or win over new clients. To this end, Lee provides a somewhat unique perspective on the matter. Rather than merely delegating tasks or barking orders to his managers and employees, Lee notes that, quote, when the company is big, you need to give your staff a sense of belonging and make them feel at ease. That's vital. The secret of management is simply identifying and making use of talent, but you must first, in principle, make them feel they belong and like you first. I find this particularly fascinating because it stands in opposition to how we normally view our corporate bosses. You know, there are those that have no empathy for their staff, there are those that micromanage and nag or scold constantly, and there are those that are going out of their way to take advantage of your effort and your time. Of course, in practice, Lee might be a horrible boss and, you know, he's just trying to appear nice to the media, but given the size of his business and how much they've grown throughout the years, chances are that there's probably more truth than fluff in what he's saying. At the very least, if Lee was indeed the secretly horrible boss, Chung Kung would likely have failed a long time ago. The lesson here, then, is an extension of the observation on trust that I raised earlier. Much like how you win over new clients by building trust and investing in relationships, it is the same with regards to your internal staff. In this way, if you want a rewarding relationship with your employees, you have to make it go both ways. It can't be just a constant take-take-take from your staff without giving anything in return aside from your salary, especially if you expect them to go above and beyond for you. Thus, the best managers are those who are able to facilitate such a relationship with their staff, be it through mentoring them, sharing them with kindness, constantly challenging them to improve, or in Lee's case, giving them a sense of belonging. This is how you build rapport with staff and motivate them to do the best for your business. The more that staff are able to feel like they can get rewarded for putting in effort and pushing themselves, the more that they will do so. And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. There's actually a bunch of other stuff I didn't get into in today's episode for the sake of time, including Chung Kong's ventures into retail, technology, and asset trading, but I think that the topics we covered today contains enough explanatory power to show how Lee made it to where he is and the amount of work and effort it took to get there. Most of the stories I went through here are referenced from a documentary which I'll link in the description, and if you're interested in learning more about Lee, then you should definitely go and check it out. On a final note, I just want to say that researching Lee's life for this episode has been somewhat inspiring. There are so many amazing insights about success and entrepreneurship that one can pick up. And if you like this kind of episode where I dive into someone's career rather than that of a business, do let me know and I'll find some others to do. Once again, Thanks so much for listening, and if you like this episode, you can help the show out by liking and subscribing to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or by sharing it or leaving your comments or suggestions on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rights Podcast, where over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism.